Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, I, uh, I have had such a fun morning hearing from many people, whether social media or hugs, of being reminded of this day and why we do this thing called Easter and why we do this thing called church. And if you're with us, if you're new this morning with us, we have been rotating around different house churches who are hosting what these look like. So Eagleville House Church, thank you for reminding us that the tomb is empty through stories and through prayers uh, and through singing. Well, uh, as uh, you may know, 13 of us got back a week ago from a trip to Israel. I want to show you some of those photos. It's not simply an excuse to do a photo time together. It does relate to what we're talking about today. So we're going to take a little bit of a tour. And as we journeyed through Israel last week, one of the things that we realized on this geographical uh, journey through Jerusalem, that it actually shows us the journey of what we're celebrating here uh, today. I want to start in a place called the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley. Today is a beautiful valley. It's been turned into a park just outside of the city walls. But in ancient times, this was a place reserved for trash and debris. This was the town dump, the city dump. Hard to tell by looking at the picture today, but fire was burning uh, the trash continually around the clock. There were flames at all times. This was such a dirty place that dogs and other animals would go there. They would ravage for food. And because it was such a filthy place, they would get diseases. And because of the diseases, they would, it would infect their brain. And they would foam at the mouth. And they would gnash their teeth as they would walk around uh, looking for this food. And it wasn't just the Jerusalem dump. It was also one of the most horrific and tragic places that existed, this Hinnom Valley. Because ancient foreigners and even Israelites worshipped a pagan god called, called Molech. Molech. Molech was most famous for its demand of child sacrifices as the ultimate form of worship. Molech was this large brass idol with drawers on its chest and its front. Here's a rendition of what scholars believe the god Molech, the idol Molech, looked like. The brass drawers, uh, the animals were placed in the top drawers, but the bottom drawer there was reserved for a human child. And the brass idol would be heated by fire, melting the animals and the children to their death. And the loud drums would be beaten in order to drown out the screams and the cries that would come from Molech and those watching uh, this horrible act. And it was in the Hinnom Valley that these child sacrifices were conducted to Molech. And there were four mentions in the Old Testament of people that actually did this. And God, of course, said you are not to ever partake in any sort of worship to Molech in this way. So the Hinnom Valley was a place of fire. It was a place of weeping and of gnashing of teeth. The Hinnom Valley, translated in Hebrew, is Gar Hinnom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom, where we get the word Gehenna or the word Hell. The school I attended, where I took that picture of that beautiful park, was just up on the hill. And the library of the school overlooked the valley below. And one cold December morning, we woke up to see that frost had covered the whole valley, of which we can confidently say we actually saw hell freeze over. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you could not find a more evil, 
hopeless, godless, dark, desecrated, filthy place in the minds of people than the Hinnom Valley. This was literally hell on earth. Just outside the city walls of Jerusalem. I'll take you to another place called Mount Moriah. Some of you may be familiar with this. This is also called the Temple Mount. Today, uh, on uh, this famous building stands there called the Dome of the Rock. But before that, uh, before it was an Islamic memorial, it was known as the Temple Mount. And here was the temple where Jesus worshipped when He was alive. But even before that, in Old Testament times, this mountain, Mount Moriah, was where God instructed Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on that same mountain. And in gripping language, God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. And then he adds these little details. Your son, your only son, your son whom you love. And instead of sacrificing a lamb as was customary, God told Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, your son whom you love. And on the journey to Mount Moriah, Isaac asks his father that question that would rip the heart out of any dad. Dad, the fire's here. The wood's here. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, with sinking heart, said, God will provide a way. God will provide a way. The story raises all sorts of questions. Is the God of Abraham like Molech? Does God require us to engage in deplorable acts such as the sacrifice of our own children? God provides this test for Abraham, the biggest and most demanding test of his life, As Abraham trusted God in that unthinkable, at the last moment, God stops Abraham and provides a ram whose horns were stuck in the thicket nearby. And Abraham said, Isaac, you've been spared. God has provided the sacrifice of the ram for us. God did provide that mercy. And no, He is not like Molech. God of Abraham was not like Moloch. He is nothing like the pagan gods of the time of Abraham. The God does not devour, this God does not devour that which is most precious to us in the form of our physical children because he sacrifices that which is most precious to him, his son, his only son, the son whom he loves because he loves us. Let me have you journey to another place, another place many of us are familiar with, especially at Christmas time. Just five miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, Beit Lechem in Hebrew, means the house of bread. And in Arabic, Beit Lechem means the house of meat. So in Beit Lechem, a baby boy would one day be born who would be called the bread of life. And this bread of life was born in the house of bread, Bakeryville. This boy would also go on to be called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb was born in the house of meat, Bethlehem, Butcher Town. Coincidence? I think not. And in the temple in Jerusalem, sacrifices up on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah, were required day after day after day to require the sin of people. 
Bloodshed was the only way that sins could be covered and forgiven. Day after day, it was offered around the clock. And like Abraham offering the ram on the sacrifice as the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, people were coming to the same mountain with their sacrifices day after day after day with their lambs and their sheep and their rams. Think of the demand of sheep, just the pure demand. If that's happening day after day after day and lambs and sheep are being sacrificed, the demand for sheep is pretty high. So in a populous city, where would you go to raise these sheep if this, this is needed so much? Where were these sheep raised? They were raised in Bethlehem, in the house of meat. Raised by shepherds who, when they came to full maturity, these sheep would be herded five miles to Mount Moriah for people to offer their sacrifices for their sin day after day after day. I'll show you another place you've heard of, the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane, which from the Temple Mount can be seen very easily at the base of the Mount of Olives. Jesus, knowing His time would be coming, knowing He would be arrested and beaten and ultimately crucified for a crime that He did not commit, He prays with His disciples. And while His disciples couldn't stay awake, Jesus couldn't stop begging His Father to take this cup from Him so that He wouldn't have to bear the oppressive weight of the sin of the world on Him. But having trusted His Father... He said, your will be done. Your will be done. He knew what was before him. So distraught, he began sweating like drops of blood. Jesus, the good shepherd, raised in Bethlehem, taken to Jerusalem, knew that he would be offered as that sacrifice once and for all, the bread of life, the Lamb of God, and at the same time, the good shepherd, slaughtered on Mount Moriah for the sins of the world. Let me take you now to the outside the city walls of Jerusalem in the opposite direction of the Hinnom Valley, just about a mile away from the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was arrested, bloodied, battered, stripped, and is taken outside to be crucified, outside the walls. Crucifixions would never happen inside the city walls. It was too gruesome. Roman execution was in its most brutal form. Blamed by the crowd, and yet silently he was led away like a sheep to the slaughter. He's hung between two insurrectionists. A sign hung above him to mock him, yet it was the most ironically prophetic statement in the history of the world. The sign reading, the King of the Jews. God offered his son, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world on behalf of a rebellious world because of his great and abounding love for creation. I'm going to take you to one more place. And it's to the garden tomb. If you ask those that went on the trip, many would say this was one of the more meaningful places that we went. His body, Jesus' body was taken down after His death, was placed in a tomb owned by a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And just a week ago Friday, on a beautiful Friday morning, our group stood looking at this. This picture here of what is believed to be as a possibility of where Jesus' body might have been laid. An empty tomb carved in the side of a rock scarp with a track 
with, uh, where a several ton stone could be rolled away. And this is what it says in Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And as our team walked in that tomb last Friday, there's a door, and on the door going into the tomb, the sign reads, He is not here, for He is risen. Christ's presence who is with us always was not there. And that is our hope. Jesus, broken, beaten, who died bearing our sin, was raised early on that Easter morning. And I love this picture. I've been reflecting on this painting. This painting um, in 1898 was called The Disciples, Peter and John Running to the Empty Tomb on the Resurrection Day. I love the eyes of Peter and of John. Such hopeful, fearful, expectant eyes. And the hands of running to this empty tomb. See, the Easter story rescues us from thinking that God, God is the God of Molech. He is not. He is not morbid. He is not seeking to suck the life quite literally out of us and our family. Instead, the empty tomb gives us the view of a God who is a loving Father who offers a sacrifice once and for all so we have to stop doing our sheep sacrificing because it's already been done by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, born in Bethlehem, raised, brought to Mount Moriah, and slaughtered. He doesn't ask that we sacrifice our children in a bronze idol because He offered His Son, His only Son, His Son whom He loves on our behalf. And because of this, we are freed from having to sacrifice day after day after day, which is why Jesus, when He did it, said this very, what seems to be hopeless, but is a hopeful statement, it is finished. What was finished was that we no longer have to take our sheep every day up there and say, I did it again. I screwed up again. I got to sacrifice again. I did it again. I screwed up again. I got to sacrifice. We say, he's, he's done it. It is finished. And the tomb is empty because of it. This is what Paul says. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the resurrection, he has some very important things to say about it. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And, and after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. He appeared not just to his disciples where he cooked up this thing, hey guys, just, you know, just, just, tell, just tell them I was raised from the dead, you know? And, 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 then, and then when I'm not, you just kind of steal my body and then just cook up this plan. No, no, no. He appeared to hundreds of people. He had been raised from the dead. And later it says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. What Paul's saying here is, if the tomb is still occupied, you right now, this morning, April 20th, 2014, in a gym in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, are wasting your time. You shouldn't be here. And the world should mock us because we're sitting here if this isn't true. It's that serious. There's more than that. If we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. You are hopeless if this doesn't happen, if this didn't happen then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for us that we've been deceived by such a story if the tomb is still occupied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes, through, comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If the tomb isn't empty, you have been deceived by a great hoax, the greatest the world has ever seen. But if in fact the tomb actually is empty, it means that Jesus has conquered death we have hope that the sin, our sin and the sin of the world has been covered once and for all. It is finished. And he was laid in a tomb that couldn't keep him there. And because the tomb is empty, we're now capable of having a life that's full of meaning and hope. If the tomb is full, you are empty. But if the tomb is empty, you are full. The irony of the good news from the Hinnom Valley to Mount Moriah, to Bethlehem, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to outside the city walls of Jerusalem, to finally the Garden Tomb. To your life and to mine, this is the journey of freedom. The biggest of days, history swings on the hinge of the empty tomb today. That's why we make such a big deal of this. Now, some of you, truthfully, have or are experiencing Gehenna a literal hell on earth, whatever secret you may be carrying with you that's sucking life out of you. You feel dead. You feel as though there have been sacrifices that have been required from you, whatever Molech looks like for you in the valley of your life, and saying there's no hope, there's no way getting out of this. And you sense that pain and that hopelessness and that death 
Even though you are physically alive, you feel death. But the chains of bondage are too strong, and you feel oppressed, and you aren't sure what to do. But I hope you've seen that you've been spared by a lamb who loves you, by a father who chose to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son, his only son, his son whom he loves, on your behalf, so you don't have to live in the Hinnom Valley. A good friend of mine posted a picture this morning. I don't have it up here on the screen, but a picture of their church in Chicago. They literally locked the door of their church sanctuary with a large several-foot chain. And then someone comes with a key. And they throw the doors open, and the whole church runs in. That, my friends, is Easter. The tomb is empty because Jesus had the key to unlock the chains so we can come running in. That is the image. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including yours, is risen. He has risen, and we have risen with Him. The bread of life who offers himself to all who are hungry, offers his body to us. And Jesus invites us to a life with him, a life spared of Gehenna and one of hope and meaning. And we're going to slide right into a time of communion. If you've been with us before, you know that not only is communion central to what we do, I mean, we, we literally have it at center court in this room because this is so central to who we are, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I want to invite you to come. The band's going to come up now. We're going to start playing. And, and after a song or two, parents, we want to excuse you to go get your children and bring them back in. So we're not really going to, we're going to have a pseudo intermission time. But we want to encourage you as you think about this idea of being rescued from the valley of Hinnom, from Gehenna, from hell, where there's fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth that you've been spared from that. To come to a table to say, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is our bread of life, who was broken so that you may be whole again. Because the empty tomb is the thing that actually allows us to be full of hope and meaning. And so the Eagleville House Church is going to be up here and they're going to be serving you and they're going to look you in the eyes and they're going to remind you that the tomb is empty. And they're going to hand it to you and not just a little tiny little piece. They're going to hand you a chunk. And they're going to not hand you a little sip, they're going to hand you a glass. And they want and we want you to partake in that to say, yes, the tomb is empty and I've been rescued from Gehenna the Hinnom Valley, because of what Jesus has done, because the tomb is empty. So let's stand up and let's celebrate this together. And when you are ready to come, I invite you to come and boldly and humbly receive this amazing promise and gift because the tomb is empty. And let's raise the roof as we do this because this is why we celebrate the hope that we have.